Well, good morning. He has risen. Amen to that. Uh, I want to just greet uh, each of you here this morning. For those of you who are regular attenders at Bethel Church, it is always sweet uh, to see everybody here together at one time. I really enjoy that we get to do that at least once a year. And I want to give a a special welcome also to our guests. Uh, For those of you who are not normally at Bethel with us, Uh, you took a risk and you came to a church maybe you haven't been to before and a setting you haven't been to before, and I want to welcome you and sincerely thank you for uh, being with us today. This this is our sweetest celebration of the entire year, the most important day on our calendar because of what this represents for us. Before I get into my message this morning, I got to just give a few uh, shout outs and a few thank yous. Uh, First of all, to our children's ministry team, you've already heard from Leah Koval, and they've got your kids well taken care of uh, outside here in the foyer, and the nursery as well, and there's just lots of work that comes with bringing all those uh, materials over and, and making sure they're ready for them. And then I also want to thank our fellowship crew uh, for getting some tasty treats together for us so we can hang out afterwards and uh, do what Baptists do, and that's eat a little bit, so uh, we get to do that. And, uh, and I really want to thank our worship team. Lots of effort in uh, rehearsing and pulling together the music and, again, moving all the materials um, over here. And then finally, and not at all, lastly, uh, I want to thank Andrew Chapman, our sound and tech and AV guy. And more than that, Andrew is my friend, and I love you, brother, and I'm so thankful for the decades of your service making this all happen, so thank you very much for that. Uh, I want to start off this morning with a few sort of lighthearted what-if questions. What if? What if Fairbanks had an olive garden, finally? (laughs) Not just the rumor of one, but an actual olive garden. What if? You could imagine the population swell. People wouldn't have to leave Fairbanks anymore. They'd just stick around because we too would have the never-ending pasta bowl, right? That, that advertisement irritates me every fall when they roll that out and I think, I can't do anything about it. I think it should be illegal to advertise food that you don't actually serve to that community. All right, what if? What if cats were, you know, useful or had some redeeming quality, like just one? Even one redeeming quality. I mean, what if they weren't totally worthless? The problem therein is that everybody would have one, and we don't want that at all. So thankfully, cats are worthless. By the way, you can email complaints to Pastor Mark (laughs) at youthpastor.com. He loves to handle those for me. What if? What if Thai food was actually healthy? right? Fairbanks would be the healthiest city in America. I I still don't totally understand why we have more Thai food per capita here than anywhere in the world, probably other than Thailand itself. Well, my last uh, what-if question here is uh, actually more of a serious nature, and it's, it's not even my own question, but rather it's the question of a group of Christians who belong to the church of Corinth in the first century. And essentially their question was, what if there's no resurrection 
from the dead. In other words, what if people, they just live 70, 80, 90 years, then they die, then they're put into the ground, and that's it. Nothing after that, no resurrection. As a matter of principle, resurrections do not happen. The dead simply don't rise. And that was essentially the teaching of this group in Corinth. In fact, they'd moved well beyond the question form of it. They were asserting it as a matter of fact. There is no resurrection of the dead. And this became sort of the very real issue that the Apostle Paul had to contend with uh, for them and had to address. So let me just be clear again. It's not that this group doubted the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus was well attested to in the first century world. They believed wholeheartedly that he had been raised. Because of the evidence of it, it was overwhelming. No, the issue that Paul had to contend with was the assertion from some in the church of Corinth that while Christ had absolutely been raised, Christ alone would be raised. That there was no future expectation of a resurrection for anyone other than Jesus himself. And these are fighting words for the Apostle Paul. He is incredulous to this. And so our passage this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. And Paul replies by saying this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, from, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So the first part of Paul's teaching here sort of deals with the cascading implications of this idea that there's no resurrection of the dead. And to be honest with you, Paul's sort of line of argumentation, it reminds me a little bit of the children's book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Remember this book? If you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk, right? And if you give him a glass of milk, he's going to want a straw. And if you give him a straw, he's want to go check the mirror and make sure he doesn't have a milk mustache. I think I've got the order right. And it's fast, this is a fascinating passage where Paul sort of similarly just works down the implications in a sort of a cascading fashion. And in doing so, he shows the true importance of Christ's resurrection. And as you probably know, at Easter time, this is the time when the preacher typically preaches about the historical reliability of the resurrection and sort of an emphasis towards the proofs and the evidence that we have to substantiate it. Uh, Some classic Easter messages that you might have heard where the Old Testament uh, prophets and writers often foretold of a future resurrection. Isaiah and David and even Job, 
who says in Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Or maybe you have heard the message of sort of the prediction of the resurrection by Jesus himself, right? If you destroy this temple in reference to his body, I will raise it up in three days. Or the professional nature of both the execution and the burial of Jesus at the hands of the Romans, which actually turn out to substantiate the resurrection because he was professionally killed, professionally guarded, and then, of course, uh, they came up with an empty tomb. Or the announcement of the angel. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. It wasn't an assumption that was made by the first witnesses. It was something that was proclaimed to them. Or maybe the the many post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, right? First of all, to women, an unlikely appearance, uh, unlikely witnesses in the first century world. Then to all the disciples. Then specifically to Peter. Then to two on the road to Emmaus. Then supernaturally to the Apostle Paul. Then to over 500 at once. Or maybe not just the quantitative uh, witness, but a qualitative one. Where Jesus appears to doubting Thomas as we know him. And he shows him the scars in his hands. Physical evidence. This man went through death. Or maybe the change that the resurrection brought upon the disciples. Who were once hiding afraid behind locked doors because of Jesus' death, and they thought they were wrong about him, only to then change to become bold witnesses for Christ, each of them ultimately giving their life as a martyr for their proclamation. I've preached all of these passages over the years, many years doing Easter here, over 20 years now. And and I generally kind of try to show and demonstrate the historical reliability of the resurrection with them. But our passage today doesn't deal with those who are doubtful about the resurrection of Jesus, but rather with those who are doubtful about the resurrection of anybody after him. And that's the issue at hand. And so Paul begins his rebuttal with what we might call the negative case. The negative case. And he is essentially telling the Corinthians, if you deny bodily resurrection out of hand, As a universal reality, people just don't rise from the dead, doesn't happen, can't happen, won't ever happen. If bodily resurrection is an absolute impossibility, then you have to apply that same impossibility to Jesus, and therefore he has not been raised. In other words, one cannot believe that Jesus only is raised and that nobody else will be raised. That's logically inconsistent. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus actually opens the door to the possibility of the resurrection of others. His resurrection serves as a precedent. But before Paul goes on to make the positive case here, uh, sort of Christ's resurrection opening the door for our resurrection, he's willing to adopt, for the sake of argument, the position of his opponents here. Uh, And this is a a kind of argumentation, a style known as reductio ad absurdium. I like to throw a little Latin in there because, as we all know, it makes everything clearer, right? 
reductio ad absurdium. It means let's carry this out to its logical conclusion. And that's what he does here. He shows that the logical conclusion of their claim that resurrections don't happen, can't happen, the Christian faith falls like a house of cards. Denying the possibility of resurrection denies the possibility of Christ's resurrection, and it ends up eviscerating the Christian faith. Now, this might sound like kind of a negative way uh, to talk about Easter. You might think, hey, I was kind of hoping for something a little more uplifting, Pastor, what you got here. But there's actually an unexpected benefit in doing this. When we trace this faulty claim to its logical conclusion, and we show the damage that it would actually do to the Christian faith, It's actually beneficial to us because when we reverse the argument and go back upstream and make the positive case, we are able to see more clearly the importance of the resurrection and how it anchors our faith. In other words, there's a benefit because we get to see its, its, its importance by its hypothetical absence. A couple weeks ago, I was on the road traveling down to Los Angeles, I was there to visit my son who was going to school. It was our birthdays, and so we had some uh, fun time hanging out together, celebrating our birthdays, which are just one day apart. And then after a few days there, I went over to Elko, Nevada to see a good friend there, Paul Holmes, my predecessor here at the church, and I got to do a couple speaking events for, for him there and for their church. And I had been gone a few days, and I, I got a very sweet text message from my bride. Amy texts me, I miss you, heart-shaped eyes. Oh, that's nice. I like that. And I take some time and write back, I miss you too. Then she replies quickly, Eleanor also misses you. She has college application forms that need your help. (laughs) Okay, good to know. Ding, another text. Also, our driveway misses you. It snowed a few inches while you were gone. All right, I get it. I see where this is going. Ding! Another text. Also, the trash piling up in the garage misses you. Okay, enough. Enough. The heart-shaped eyes were misleading here. But sometimes when someone or something is missing... We get a clearer picture of their real value and their contribution. And so it is with Paul's argument about the resurrection here. That's essentially how he lays things out. The negative case. If resurrections are a complete impossibility, then Jesus hasn't been raised. Careful what you assert. If Jesus hasn't been raised, our preaching absolutely useless. If Jesus hasn't been raised... Our faith is useless. We're believing a lie. If Jesus hasn't been raised, we're still in our sins. He wasn't who he said he was. If Jesus hasn't been raised, then there is no hope for the dead, for the past or for the future. If Jesus hasn't been raised, and the only value of following Christ is for these few years here on earth, then Paul says, We're to be pitied. Pitied. In other words, if you say that resurrecting from the dead is an absolute impossibility, the Christian faith crashes like a house of cards. 
I was thinking about this the past few weeks. I was preparing my message, and uh, there are a number of songs that started coming to mind that make the claim, see if you'll recognize this line, the cross was enough. Several songs that say that, and I don't want to mention any particular artist, but I'm going to pick on that line a little bit. As I got thinking about that, I, I started to kind of feel maybe we shouldn't sing those songs. Because, quite frankly, I don't think it's true. The cross was enough. I want to say, and this is provocative, and I'll tease this out a little bit, the cross wasn't enough. We absolutely needed, in addition to the cross, the resurrection of Jesus. If there's no resurrection of Jesus, the cross is empty. The cross, without the resurrection, is kind of like a one-bladed scissor. You know, it just doesn't cut it. But it's the resurrection that substantiates the value of the cross. Let me, let me put it to you another way. If you were looking to tear down, to destroy, and to dismantle the Christian faith from the inside out, then undermine the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Doing so eviscerates the Christian faith. What we believe is entirely dependent upon Christ's resurrection from the dead. Uh, one theologian, the late R.C. Sproul, said provocatively, the resurrection justifies Jesus as the Son of God so that Jesus can justify us to God. In other words, because of the resurrection, we know Christ's work on the cross was accepted to the Father, accepted by the Father, and that it was effective to achieve our forgiveness through atonement. But if Jesus had only gone to the cross and then into the ground and had not raised and had only remained, he would have only remained a dead teacher, but not a savior. And that's what I mean when I sort of push back and say the cross wasn't enough. Not all by itself. The cross was enough only when validated by the resurrection. But I'll admit, that's not nearly as singable, is it? So we've considered, what if Christ hasn't raised from the dead? And we've seen the devastating implications. But now Paul moves on from the negative case to make the positive case. What if he did? What if he did? What implications does that have upon your life and upon mine? And as he answers this question, we get to see the goodness and the glory and the beauty of Christ's resurrection for you and for me. And so Paul picks up on this in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so here, Paul is making the positive case. And he starts off by saying something that his opponents already believe. They share this together. The resurrection of Christ from the dead is a verified fact in history. 
They believed this. They were confident of this. It was well attested to. And then he moves on to kind of color in a little bit the implications. He says the resurrection from Christ from the dead serves as the first fruits. First fruits. In other words, more than just validating the Father's acceptance of the Son's sacrifice, the resurrection also serves as a precedent as a first installment of future resurrections. Uh, the term first fruits, not one we throw around very often, uh, and it, it's sort of an agricultural term referring to the worship practice of Israel at harvest time. And in recognition that the whole harvest was the gift of God, uh, it was customary to dedicate a first portion of your harvest to him in worship. In other words, the small portion represented the whole. Kind of like when you buy a house and you give the seller earnest money. You're telling them you're serious about this. You're coming back with more. Or you put a deposit on something, maybe a puppy, right? You wouldn't put it on a cat. You wouldn't put a deposit on a cat. You'd put it on a puppy and say, when this, when this puppy is born, we're coming back for this thing. You put a deposit on it. Or you, you pay an installment as a continual promise of, of the future in full amount. And so Christ's resurrection serves as a deposit, an earnest payment, a first installment, the first resurrection representing the many yet to come. And Christ's bodily resurrection is is a precedent, not just that it will happen, but even for the kind of body that we'll get, as I like to call them, bodies to die for. Bodies to die for. Finally, Paul goes on to explain the relationship sort of between the one and the many here. He talks about Adam. Through one, through Adam, came death. And through one, Jesus, comes life. And it's, I think, uh, we are accustomed to kind of hearing passages that speak of Adam as one and Christ as one. We tend to think about, yeah, through Adam, sin came into the world. And Christ is the one who makes atonement for sin. And that's absolutely true. But Paul's point here actually has to do more with death as the consequence of sin. It's interesting. Sometimes you'll, you'll talk to somebody. If you've lost a loved one or you, you have suffered some kind of loss or grief, someone may come up to you and say something like this. Well, death is just a part of life. And they're well-meaning, they're well-intentioned, and they're flat wrong. They're just wrong. The only thing that's right about that is, yeah, death is going to happen. But they speak of it as though it were something that God made or God desired or something that's always been here. And that's not true. Death had a beginning. And thanks to Jesus Christ, death has an end. It has an expiration date. But death is an intruder. It's the deranging byproduct of sin. Sin and death are actually creations of mankind, not of God. And here Paul rightly calls death an enemy and the last enemy to be destroyed. And through the resurrection, Christ destroys both sin and death itself. And finally here, because of the resurrection, we wait for a blessed hope. And it's anchored in something. This hope is that Christ alone will reign. There's a great phrase that uh, Dallas Willard has used. Uh, it's, it's divine conspiracy. It's the title of one of his books, and I love that phrase. 
That is, in fact, the age that we are living in right now. There is a divine conspiracy afoot where the sin that came into this world that wrecked the shalom of God is now being reversed because of the glorious work of Jesus Christ, not only in the cross, but also in his resurrection. The Bible says that if we repent of our sin and turn to Christ in saving faith and accept his sacrifice made for us, the Bible says that God transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. We have access to that kingdom through repentance and faith. And the good news is that there is a day coming when Christ will return and he will judge the living and the dead. And friends, the important thing about that is this. You have to take refuge in Christ for the judgment that is to come. Every one of us in this room was born into this world as a sinner and have deepened that hole with our own actions and attitudes and wills. Each of us is deserving of judgment, but Christ came that the judgment might not fall upon us, but upon him, that his death would be the place that sin was killed and death itself. The resurrection legitimizes Jesus as God's true son. The resurrection confirms that the cross is the place where sin was truly paid for and and the way that Christ put death to death. Because of the resurrection, our faith is well-founded, our preaching is right, our hope is sure, our earthly sacrifices are reasonable, and his resurrection is the precedent for our own future resurrection. Or as the Apostle Peter has said, because of the resurrection, we have a living hope, a hope that has a heartbeat, that has a name, and who is coming back for those who belong to him. My friends, there is nothing more important than I could ask you to do right now, which is to be reconciled to God. You were born a sinner, but Christ came to kill your sin and to remove the sting of death so that you would be raised. And so I want to close by just offering a prayer right now where I give you an opportunity to repent of your sin, to receive Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, and to know for sure this day that you've been justified to God the Father through Jesus Christ. So if that expresses the desire of your heart, I'm going to ask everyone to just bow right now. I'm going to offer a prayer. And if this is the work that you need to do, would you do that this day, Easter 2023? I implore you, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, I acknowledge my sin, born into it and living into it. I acknowledge that it separates me from your holiness, from your goodness, And yet, Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ is your only begotten Son, that he was sent to bear the iniquities and the sins of me and everyone else. Lord, I confess them, I repent, and I receive his sacrifice on my behalf. Bring me into your kingdom. Make me your child. Teach me how to live for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.